Hi all, my name's Lloyd and I'm going to be doing the Bible reading for us today. So the Bible reading uh, is in your handouts. It's Ecclesiastes 1 verse 12 to uh, 226. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For which, for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labour, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, while the fools walks in the darkness. But I came to realise that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. 
So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labour under the sun. For a person may labour with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labour under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Thanks, Lloyd. Uh, So we're taking a break from the book of uh, Revelation uh, to do a quick skim over the whole of Ecclesiastes. This is kind of Ecclesiastes uh, in half an hour. Um, Partly because I'm leaving and uh, Ecclesiastes is my baby, uh, so I thought it would be fun to have a look at it. And hopefully it'll be useful to you. Uh, You'll have a bit of a framework for trying to think about Ecclesiastes Uh, And as you read it at home and think it through and you discover that what I said was completely wrong, you can come and uh, tell me and save me from wasting the next three years of my life. (laughs) So the question that Ecclesiastes really poses for us is why are you doing what you're doing? Or to put it another way, what are you aiming to get out of life? The book of Ecclesiastes is written to help us think those things through. Uh, to think what we are doing and what we're aiming for, what we're aiming to get out of life. And in the first verse of the book, uh, we get a hint that Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Uh, Now, of course, uh, there were lots of uh, sons of David who were kings over, uh, who were kings uh, uh, in Jerusalem, But uh, verse 12 also says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, which strongly hints that we're looking at Solomon as the author here, because after Solomon, the kingdom split in two, and there was a king over Israel in Samaria and a king over Judah in Jerusalem, but after Solomon, there was no king over Israel in Jerusalem. Uh, And yet it doesn't quite come straight out and say that it is Solomon. But whether it's actually Solomon or we're just being invited to imagine that it's being written by Solomon, uh, it's going to be helpful for us in thinking through uh, why, what it would be like uh, to be this enormously successful king, the wisest, the wealthiest, the most successful king in the history of Israel. And what that means for thinking about life. Uh, But given that it is sort of depicting itself as written by Solomon, it's a little surprising that in the very second verse of the book, he blurts out, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. It's worth uh, saying that the word meaningless here is actually a terrible translation of the Hebrew word hevel, uh, because hevel doesn't mean meaningless. 
It literally means something like vapour or steam or the breath that comes out of your mouth on a cold morning. And, of course, the teacher is using it as a metaphor here. He doesn't mean that, like, the chair you're sitting on is literally steam or something like that. Um, He's using it as a metaphor. But when you look at how it's used elsewhere in the Bible, it's not used as a metaphor for meaningless. It's used as a metaphor for something more, like, insubstantial. Uh, Like, vapour or steam is insubstantial. You can't... It looks like there's something there, but you can't grab hold of it. You can't hang on to it. It just sort of slips through your fingers. So that's what he's saying. Everything is vapour. But what does he mean by it? Because it's not just where he starts with the book of Ecclesiastes. It's where the teacher finishes as well. The last words of the teacher in chapter 12, verse 8, are identical to his first. Vapour, vapour. Everything is vapour. So he doesn't just sort of start off glum and then... You know, he cheers up as the book goes on. Uh, They both kind of begin and end in the same place. And you could sort of write that off as the teacher sort of playing devil's advocate. Uh, Let's try and imagine what life would be like without God. Oh, it's all vapour. But if you put God back in, it solves all the problems. Except when you get to the end of Ecclesiastes, you get an editor kind of pop in for the last six verses to give his verdict on what the teacher has said. And here's what he says in chapter 12, verse 9. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. Now, that's a pretty ringing endorsement of the teacher, isn't it? That what he wrote was upright and true. So what does the teacher mean when he says that everything is vapour? Well, he starts to help us understand from chapter 1, verse 3, where he asks the key question of Ecclesiastes. What do people gain from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? The word for gain here is the commercial word for profit. What profit is left over from the business of life? Uh, And the teacher's answer is... Nothing. Nothing is left over from the business of life. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. And everything just kind of goes round and round and round. There's nothing added to it. It's a closed system. And from verse 12 onwards, the teacher tells us uh, about his research project that he has undertaken to find out what can be gained from life. He's kind of told us the conclusions up front, but what was his methodology? Well, he says, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun, And all of them are vapour, are chasing after the wind. See, he's super wise, he goes on to say, but that didn't help him get any profit out of life. He's super rich, but that didn't help either. Chapter 2, verse 10, uh, he says he denied himself no pleasure and he enjoyed his work while he was doing it. But when he sat back to survey it all, the enjoyment evaporated. Why? Why? 
Well, because there was no profit. There was no lasting profit. He recognises in chapter 2, verse 13, that, you know, it's obviously better to be wise than to be a fool, just as light is better than darkness. But in the end, he says, the same fate overtakes them both. That the wise man, like the fool, must die. And this is really the heart of the problem in Ecclesiastes. Why is it that you can't take any profit out of life? Because we all die and death takes everything off you. So chapter 5, verse 15, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. And it's obviously true, isn't it? At the time of his death uh, in 1937, John D. Rockefeller, uh, he was an American oil baron, uh, was worth over $350 billion in today's terms. It's a billion with a B. Uh, arguably the wealthiest man who has ever lived. Possibly the second wealthiest. I think there was some Persian Shah who uh, did pretty well too. But uh, when he died, the story goes that a journalist uh, asked Rockefeller's lawyer how much did he leave? And the lawyer looked at him a little puzzled and he said, all of it. He left all of it. And it's true, isn't it? (laughs) You don't get to take any of it with you. Every single cent of that $350 billion was left behind. He had to leave all of it. And that's true for him. It's true for you. It's true for me. And so the question that raises is that if the result is always the same, no matter what you do, you get to take none of it with you, what is the point of doing anything? And yet the teacher says there is something. So far, God's been pretty much out of the picture in Ecclesiastes. He's only been mentioned in chapter 1, verse 13. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. But in chapter 2, verse 2, the teacher recognises that the ability to eat and drink and find satisfaction in our toil also comes from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? He's saying that God won't let us take any profit out of life, but actually he gives us good gifts to enjoy within it. And how do you do that? Well, by pleasing God instead of being a sinner, he says. To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. Jesus actually says something very similar uh, in Luke chapter 12 in the parable of the rich fool. He says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. Now the sort of comic thing in this parable is that the rich man quotes the first half of a famous saying. Eat, drink and be merry. Anyone know what the second half is? For tomorrow we die. die. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And that's literally what happens to the rich guy. Jesus goes on. 
Um, verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? See, the rich man, like the sinner in Ecclesiastes 2.26, gathers up and stores wealth only to hand it over to someone else. And what's Jesus' application? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what the teacher in Ecclesiastes is saying, that this is how to live life, not by being rich towards yourself, not trying to store up stuff and accumulate stuff that you can't possibly keep, but by being rich towards God. Which raises the question of what does that mean? Like, how do you actually do that? How do you be rich towards God? Uh, And I think Ecclesiastes chapter 3 shows us the way to do that. Uh, It begins with this famous poem. Uh, You might have heard the song um, by Pete Seeger or the birds. Um, Maybe you saw it on Forrest Gump. I don't know. Um, It's old. I'm showing my age. But there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build, etc., etc., etc. And at the end of the poem, in chapter 3, verse 9, the teacher goes back to his original question and he asks, what do workers gain from their toil? And he says again that God has laid a burden on the human race. And it's not just death, it's also our inability to grasp life to actually get a hold of what's going on. See, it's all about timing. And there are times where you really hit the sweet spot in life, aren't there? There are times where you make the right joke at the right moment and you just kill it and everyone cracks up laughing and you bask in your glory. Or the times where you sat down with a friend who'd been hurt and you just cried with them. And it was exactly the right thing to do. Exactly the right moment for it. But we often get things wrong too. We get the timing wrong a lot. Like when you go in for a hug with someone and then sort of realise too late that, oh no, they're not a hugger. And, you know, it's too late to pull out and it's awkward and it's terrible. Or more seriously... Uh, Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, returning from a meeting with Adolf Hitler and declaring peace for our time when it was a time for war. We don't always get the timing right. And that's the point. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We can kind of see that there's this plan in operation because sometimes our little plans sync up with it. It's like this big gear that's turning and sometimes our little gear meshes with it, but sometimes it crunches. Either way, it tells you that the big gear is there rotating. God's plan. It's there, but we never really figure it out. And why has God done that? Uh, Is it because he's just sort of toying with us? Well, no, Uh, verse 12. The teacher says, I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. 
that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. See, God actually gives good gifts, a happiness, the ability to do good, to enjoy eating and drinking and finding satisfaction in our work. Those are real blessings. They're genuine gifts. God's not out to get us. So why has he made life so unfathomable, so ungraspable? Well, the teacher says, verse 14 of chapter 3, God does it so that people will fear him. Or to use Jesus' language, so that we'll be rich towards God. That instead of fixing our eyes on the stuff that death will take from us, we fix our eyes on God. Instead of living for the gifts, we live for the giver and enjoy the gifts. And verses 16 and 17 the teacher notices something else about life. He says, in the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. He's been saying all through this chapter that there's a time for this and a time for that. Uh, But if God is clearly in control and the time for justice and judgment is not now, what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that there must be a time for justice and judgment coming. It's not now, judging by the injustice and wickedness of our world, but God's judgment and justice will come. So how do you be rich towards God? You fear him, says the teacher. You recognise that God is the one who's in control and not you, that death is coming and God is going to judge. And so you be content with the good gifts that he gives, content with food and drink and finding satisfaction in your work, instead of storing up bigger and bigger crops in bigger and bigger barns as though you're going to live forever, as though it actually means something. God does it so that people will fear him. And I think this is really the main argument of Ecclesiastes the heart of the teacher's sermon, and the rest of it from here on in just kind of applies these chapters to life. Uh, So we're going to go a lot quicker through the rest of the book, you'll be glad to know. So in chapters four to six, uh, the teacher points out what goes wrong if you ignore his teaching. That if instead of fearing God, uh, you live as though you're never going to die and you're never going to face God's judgment. What happens then? Well, he says, one thing that happens is you get oppression because people trample over other people trying to get more and more stuff. Which is stupid because they can't keep it anyway. You see people who become workaholics. People who sort of, you know, they're working from six till ten every day and they're just flogging themselves in the belief that he who dies with the most toys wins forgetting that he who dies with the most toys still dies and he doesn't get to take his toys with him. (laughs) Stupid. We see relationships ruined as people obsess about getting ahead and neglecting their friends and family. We see people throwing their whole lives into getting rich and then they lie awake at night worrying about losing it all. Or worse, he says... God gives them their heart's desire, everything that they've ever wanted. 
They get the money, they get the houses, they get the dream job, they get the trophy wife and discover that they can't enjoy any of it. And that's miserable. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verses 6 to 10. He says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. It's Ecclesiastes, right? But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's Ecclesiastes. The teacher is urging us to be wise. But then that does also raise another question, doesn't it? Why should I bother being wise? Because actually, you've just said that in the end, the outcome is always the same, whether I'm wise or foolish. I'm the wise person, the fool, they're both going to die. Why would I put all the effort into being wise? Because it does take a lot of effort. You know, I mean, you guys understand some of that, don't you? You're heading towards exams, you're trying to learn and gain as much wisdom about the world as you can, and it requires effort. Why not just be a lazy fool and not bother with it? Because let's face it, in the end, you're going to have the same, aren't you? Just because you got HDs at UWA doesn't mean you get to take your diploma with you. Why bother with wisdom? Well, in chapter 7 to 10, the teacher tackles that question and he says two main things. Uh, On the one hand, he says, wisdom is fantastic because it will help you to realise what he's realised about life, that you can't take the stuff with you when you die. Death will take everything off you. So chapter 7, verse 2. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. And having realised that wisdom will help you to live well, uh, having realised that, wisdom will also help you to live well in this world. Um, Verse 11, wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and it benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, wisdom preserves those who have it. So wisdom is super beneficial uh, in terms of life and thinking well about it and living it well. But on the other hand, he keeps saying, you mustn't fall back into the trap of thinking that if I'm just wise enough, I'll be able to take some profit out of life. Because, no, you won't. In fact, wisdom won't even guarantee you success within life. It is generally true that if you're wise and righteous, life will go better for you than if you're unrighteous and foolish. But there's no guarantee. It says in chapter 8, 14, there's something else vaporous that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is vapour. You can't guarantee that you'll have a good life or a good outcome in life just through wisdom. Things don't always work that way. And his point is, it's not that God has lost his grip on the situation. Rather, it's God's reminder that you don't have control of it. Your inability to grasp life, to gain profit, is a reminder that he's in control and not us. 
He says, when I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labour that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. Which leaves us with the question then, if we can't comprehend life, if we can't master it, if we can't escape death, if we gain nothing from all our labours at which we toil under the sun, what should we do? (laughs) How should we live? And the teacher gives us the answer to that in the last couple of chapters of the book. Uh, Here's chapter 11, verse 1. Ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures, yes, in eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. In other words, life is predictably unpredictable. But don't let that paralyse you, he says. Get on with life. Make investments. Remember to diversify your portfolio because you don't know what's going to happen. But invest. Do stuff. Start businesses. But remember that you're not in control. God is in control, not you. Now, the Apostle James puts it this way in James chapter 4. He says, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist. There's that word, a vapour, that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we'll live and do this or that. The teacher is saying the same thing as James. God's sovereignty is not an invitation to laziness. Rather, it's an invitation to live wisely, recognising that God is in control, not us. And actually, recognising that, understanding that you can't take profit out of life, that you're not in control of life now, actually enables you to enjoy life, he says. Chapter 11, verse 9. You who are young, be happy while you're young, and let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. I see lots of people think uh, they're they're all good on the idea of uh, following your heart and whatever your eyes see, but the thought of God's judgment sort of ruins all that. Ideally, what you'd do is you'd forget about God uh, for most of your life, go and enjoy yourself while you're young, uh, and then ideally you convert on your deathbed, right? Because then you don't go to hell. So you get the best of both worlds. You get to have had all the fun by sinning it up, uh, and you get to avoid hell. It's the win-win situation. And the teacher says, no, that's stupid. (laughs) Why would you waste your life living like that? It gets it precisely backwards. Instead, chapter 12, verse 1, uh, he says, Remember your creator in the days of your youth. And he goes on to talk about all the sort of declining capacities of people as they age. Remember your creator in the days of your youth so that you'll be able to enjoy your life while you're young, he says. Because it's actually in remembering God, in fearing him, that real enjoyment of life becomes possible. Because everyone else is rushing around, desperately 
trying to accumulate more and more stuff, trying to get ahead, trying to prove themselves, to create some sort of sense of meaning in their life. And it's exhausting. People call it success, but the teacher says, no, it's a colossal failure. It's a miserable life full of anxiety and overwork and failed relationships as you use people to try and get ahead and midlife crises and disasters. No, he says, vapour, vapour, everything is vapour. You can't hold on to it. You can't control it. Sooner or later, death will take it all away. Uh, Luke tells us that when the resurrected Jesus met some of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Uh, Now, who knows whether Jesus actually talked with them about Ecclesiastes or not, but it is interesting to read Ecclesiastes in the light of Jesus. Because when you stop and think about it, Jesus kind of embodies the teacher's teaching. I mean, he is the king over Israel in Jerusalem. And he always lived his life in light of his death. He always had his eyes on it. He didn't try to accumulate stuff or have have a great career or marry a supermodel. He said, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He didn't try to accumulate stuff, but he did enjoy life. He ate and he drank. He went to parties. He found satisfaction in the work that the father had given him to do. In fact, he complains about the Pharisees that the son of man came eating and drinking and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Jesus is the wisdom of God come in the flesh. He actually embodies the teaching of Ecclesiastes. And in turning his back on earthly success and entrusting himself to his father, even to the point of death on a cross, he actually took the death and judgment that we deserve on himself. And he broke its power and he set us free. Now, death will still take everything off us. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you get to take your Mercedes with you when you die. But that's a deliberate strategy of God to cause us to fear him. But because of Jesus, we can fear God and not death. Because God has entrusted judgment to Jesus, the living one who was dead and now is alive forever and ever. He's the one who holds the keys of death and Hades. And one day he will open their gates and raise his people from the dead and into a far, far better world than the one the people around us are desperately trying to hang on to in a futile attempt to grasp what cannot be held. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. The teacher is saying, if you love gifts and you use God to try and get more of them, well, you will ruin your life trying to accumulate more of what you can't keep and you'll face God's judgment in the future. But if you love God 
you're actually set free to enjoy the gifts that he gives without the fear of losing them. You will lose many of the things that God gives you. But you don't need to fear that because your life was never about the gifts. It was about the giver. And that's really what Ecclesiastes is about. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to fear you instead of fearing death. And please help us to love you and live for you instead of loving and living for the things that you give us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sarah.